Welcome back to the podcast, everyone. This is episode number 34, Furniture Repair Business, The Details, Part 2. I didn't quite realize that I had so much stuff to say about furniture repair. Honestly, it's not my main part of my business anymore. In fact, it never really was part of my business. When I started this 20 years ago, I had no intention of doing furniture repair and kind of fell into it almost by accident for probably the first, I don't know, five, eight years. Nobody asked me about furniture repair other than friends and family. And then all of a sudden, I just started getting phone calls and I did a little bit of digging, heard on the grapevine that there were, were two people in our community who did a lot of furniture repair who had passed away. And they were gone and people were searching. I didn't even list furniture repair on my website as something that I did, but I started to get the, the phone calls. And that's how I got into this, not really because I wanted to, but I wanted to help people out and You can learn so much about woodworking if you repair furniture because you get a first-hand look at how someone else screwed up. You can see that this leg broke because they allowed the grain to run out of the leg instead of selecting a piece of wood that had parallel grain. You pick up on all types of things like this. You can see exactly how much damage a four-year-old with a fork can do to a dining room table. So it's a a good way to sharpen your woodworking skills and keep them sharp. Now, last week we had been talking about furniture repair and also furniture restoration and refinishing. I'd like to talk a little bit more about furniture refinishing because that's something that's going to creep up about oh three minutes after you open your business so here we go a refinishing is when you completely take off the existing finish some phone calls will be you know do you strip furniture and so what that customer wants is the original finish completely removed Now, traditionally, the way this was done was in a a dip tank where the person would have a a chemical in a like a 55-gallon drum or something like that, and they would literally dip the piece into the chemical, let it sit there for 10 or 15 minutes and pull it out, and the finish literally falls off. Sometimes the veneer would also fall off or the chair rungs would start falling off. That was kind of not the best way of removing finish, but it used to happen. A lot of more modern refinishers will use what's called an overflow tank or sometimes a flood tank. And this is a usually a stainless steel basin that they can set a piece of furniture on and then it looks almost like a a garden watering wand that the chemical stripper is pumped up through and it washes over the furniture piece softening the finish and you can use various techniques to to remove the finish from there you really reduce the contact of the chemical 
to the wood and you don't use nearly as much chemical and it does a really good job. Now, currently in this economy, chemical strippers are getting really, really expensive. Plus, the government has saw fit to pretty much outlaw methylene chloride strippers from the consumer markets. Now, professionals can still get this, but that's also inviting the EPA or your state Department of Environmental Management into your business for inspections, and that opens up a totally new can of worms that I personally do not want to mess with. So the old methylene chloride strippers like Strip Ease did a pretty good job on most furniture, but we can't get that anymore. Most of the strippers now are some type of a citrus space that may work or they may not work. Sometimes, maybe. And canoe restoration. I have tried just about every stripper made and I have come to the conclusion that some strippers will strip some finishes and some other strippers will not strip some finishes. It really kind of depends on the f finishes. I found some varnish that was put on probably in the 20s or 30s that, I mean, dynamite seems to work well on it, but none of the chemical strippers really work. Now, something else you can use is a uh, like a sodium hydroxide, a, a lye uh, stripper. Um, like any of these chemicals, you've got to be very careful with these. Read the directions. Follow the directions. If it says use in a well-ventilated area, they mean use in a well-ventilated area and wear a respirator. Another thing you need to pay attention to is lead. You might get an old door or maybe some piece of furniture that's been painted. It really would not be a bad idea to do a lead test. You can pick these little kits up at any of the box stores, hardware stores. They're real easy to do. Don't do just the surface, but sand away or chip away down to bare wood and do the test strip over several layers of material. You could have seven layers of paint on there. The first three are lead. And that's what you need to be concerned with. And if you find lead, take appropriate precautions. You do not want to breathe this stuff in. So this is where abrasion doesn't really work very well. You're better off using some type of a chemical stripper that totally encapsulates the lead particles and does not allow it to become airborne. Another thing you can use on paint, particularly lead paint, is infrared heat. You've got to be very careful using heat around lead. Do not, do not use like a propane torch or a heat gun to remove lead. Why? You will cook yourself. Both of those heat sources are much higher than the volatility of lead. You will literally turn that into a gas and you'll start breathing the stuff in. Not a good look. But if you use an infrared heat gun, and they make these 
specifically for stripping lead paint. They only get up to around 600 degrees, 550, 600 or so, which is below the vaporation point of lead. And so it's a much, much, much safer technique without resorting to chemicals. Chemicals can be good because you're just creating this like slurry that it all gets you know, scraped up and, and, and disposed of. If you are doing a lot of work inside a house or even on the outside of a house, you need to be aware of the government lead abatement program called RRP, Renovation, Repair, and Painting Program. It's a program set up through the EPA to try to mitigate lead exposure in residential and commercial properties. It's it's a government program. If you're doing a lot of this, you really should check into it and become informed. The other way of removing a finish is with abrasives. Good old-fashioned sandpaper. You'll probably want to invest in a really good random orbit sander and maybe an inline sander. What about a belt sander? Hey, I've got a belt sander. Can I use that? No, please do not use a belt sander. I have seen and heard of more projects destroyed with a belt sander than I can count. I remember a guy back in my hometown built this beautiful cedar strip wood canoe and he was using a belt sander to smooth out the exterior of the hall, went right through. I mean, the cedar strips are only about maybe a quarter of an inch thick to begin with, and he burnt right through. Just just don't use a belt sander. It's, it's just not worth it. Invest in a good random orbit sander. And this is where I'm going to throw my hat into the ring and suggest either a Festool or a Merca-style sander. I have an RO150 that's a 6-inch random orbit with direct drive. The thing will eat finish and wood. It's incredible. It's like having a one of the old-fashioned circular sanders, if you remember those, that will just hog out a whole bunch of wood. It's almost like having a four-inch angle grinder with sandpaper on it. This thing will remove wood quickly. Or switch it over to the random orbit mode, and you can get a finish-ready surface with just one tool. I also have an RO90. It's a three-inch sander, which is fantastic for getting into small little areas that uh, the big six-inch can't get into. And it has a triangle sander attachment, which works marvelously. I've had a, a fine sander the triangle oscillating, and you can get all the saw blades and cutting blades and scraping blades. A fantastic tool. Love the tool. But the Festool RO90 with the triangle attachment really does a far superior job. And a wonderful thing about Festool is dust collection. In fact, it might be a little too good because you don't need very much suction 
I ha also have a, an ETS-125, that's a 5-inch random orbit. Nice little finish sander, but when I first got it, I brought it home all excited and hooked it up to the shop vac that I've always used and started sanding some wood just to see how, how it would do, and it was awful. I mean, not just like a few pigtails here and there. It was covered with pigtails. I tried everything, and I could not get a good finish off of it. I was so disappointed. It's about a $200 machine. It's not their, you know, top of the line, but, you know, 200 bucks for a 5-inch random orbit sander, you would think that it would do a pretty decent job. Nope. I took it back to the shop that I got it from and asked him about it, and he asked what vacuum I had it hooked up to. And I told him, and he said, you're going to have to build some type of a throttle for your vacuum because the shop vac pulls so much air that it will literally adhere the sander to the wood. There's so much down pressure generated from the vacuum that it pulls the grit down into the wood and it has no choice but to leave scratches. And so I used some PVC pipe, built a throttle that I could adjust the, the, uh, the airflow going through it and worked wonderfully. I later bought a Festool vacuum. I think I, I have the MIDI and it has an adjustable suction control on it. And so anytime that I'm sanding, I take the suction control down to bare minimum and it does a marvelous job. Merca does the same type of thing. They have some very, very good sanders, both electric and pneumatic. Pneumatic sanders have a lot going for them if you have a large air compressor. Not everyone does. So if you don't Personally, I don't think it's worth going out and buying a very large air compressor to run pneumatic sanders. Just stay with the, the electric. Uh, Merca has some very good electric sanders, uh, as do Festool. So after you've stripped the finish off, you have also stripped any stain that is on the piece off, and you need to restain the piece. Sometimes it will be the same color. Sometimes the customer will want something a little different, maybe something a little lighter, which seems to be the, the popular trend. Sometimes maybe something a little darker, or the customer wants the piece painted. That's where the HVLP sprayer really shines. And then you have to apply a top coat. That's either an oil-based product or a waterborne product. I've mentioned on here before that I've really started to tune into the waterborne products for a number of reasons. Number one, they don't stink as much as the oil-based. The technical term is off-gas. You still need to use these in a well-ventilated area. You still need to wear a respirator when you're applying even waterborne because there are VOCs, there's just fewer of them. But I've found that, especially doing any work in customers' homes, use a waterborne finish. They are going to love you for that. 
almost all flooring finishes are waterborne now. They've been using waterborne finishes on everything from bowling alleys to gym floors to fancy high-end homes. It's all been waterborne finish probably for the last 20 or 30 years. They were the ones who really kind of pioneered that. Again, this is where an HVLP sprayer will really come in handy, especially if you're doing things like a dining room set where you have six or eight chairs plus the table itself. HVLP will pay for itself in the time savings as opposed to finishing it by hand. So we have talked about repairing furniture, restoring furniture. Now let's talk about conserving furniture. Conserving furniture is different than the other two. This piece of furniture is so monetarily valuable or historically valuable that we don't want to screw it up. If we have an original Queen Anne chair from you know the 1700s, it probably shouldn't be stripped and painted pink. Not a real good idea. Now, this comes down to property rights, and if a customer owns an 18th century Queen Anne chair and she wants it pink, she is entirely within her, her purview to have a pink Queen Anne chair. You might want to just discuss with the customer the ramifications of doing this, and a lot of furniture repair restoration people would not do that. So the entire idea of conservatorship is to preserve the original for future generations. That's why you don't want a pink Queen Anne chair. Sometimes the best work you can do on a piece like this is no work. Leave it original. Don't touch it. Anytime you touch a piece of furniture like this, the guiding principle is do no harm. If something's broken, it can be repaired. But there are a few guidelines in doing this. Anything that you do to that chair needs to be reversible. So if a museum acquires this chair in 50 years, they can see where you made a repair to a rung. They should be able to undo that repair. If you have to add finish, you need to add a finish that can be reversed. So like catalyzed varnish probably is not a good idea on something like this, but maybe something more appropriate would be a, a soft resin varnish. And the other thing is not to go overboard with your repair to the point that no one really can tell. Sure, you're doing a restoration, the goal actually is to make a repair that nobody can see, but not when we're talking about conservation of a piece. It should be obvious to a well-trained eye that you have done this type of, of repair. We don't want to change the original character of the piece, but we can restore the piece to a, a usable functional state but we're not trying to hide anything. There's a whole 
well, shoot, you can go to college and get a degree in, in conservation. And these people do absolutely incredible, incredible work. You may hear them referred to as curators of some famous museum or conservators or preservationists. This is really high-end stuff. They're not doing the, you know, the, the stuff you picked up at the, uh, the local used furniture store. They're doing some really, really high-end stuff. And some of the techniques they use is just out of this world. There's this one technique that they developed to clean a an antiquity. This was, I think, like a, a Mayan piece of pottery. No, it was a... It was a, um, a textile. I believe it was Mayan. And, you know, incre- I mean, there's like two of these in the entire world. And it was incredibly intricate, but there was a lot of dirt and grime in the, in the pattern. And what they finally figured out is that they could use an enzyme that would eat that grime, but not touch anything else. I mean, who comes up with this type of stuff? Well, Curators, conservators, and preservationists do. This is our business. If you want to watch something really, really fascinating, check out Bumgardner Restoration on YouTube. I'll leave a link in the show notes. This is a a gentleman who does conservation work on fine oil paintings. And it is incredible what he he does i mean the way he can go in and clean and repair and the the care that he takes with each piece you would be well versed just to watch a few of his episodes to see how he handles things and the process that he goes through really really incredibly interesting even if you have you know no desire to to go into you know repairing or restoring paintings, a, a lot of the techniques that he use, uses are very applicable to, to furniture. Oh, something else these people come up with? Microcrystalline wax. You've probably heard of museum wax. It's an incredible product that is used on fine pieces of of wood objects, not necessarily your dining room table, but if you have a, let's say a turned bull or a wood sculpture or a, a jewelry box, you can use a microcrystalline wax on that. It takes very, very little to do an entire piece. And the way this wax is structured, it doesn't leave any fingerprints. Typically, if you use like a paste wax and you go through, you can leave a fingerprint on it. And this was developed in the um, British Museum of Natural History, I believe, as a way of protecting some of their artifacts while still allowing the public to interact with that. In other words, pick it up and handle it. If they did that with just a normal wax, it would they'd have to be cleaning the thing all the time. But the microcrystalline wax does a fantastic job of protecting a piece. It's very popular with, uh, with wood turners. Okay, one final thing. I'd like to talk about reproductions or recreations. You may see in a catalog or some advertisement 
genuine reproduction. <laughs> what does that mean? This is a genuine reproduction of a early 1800 empire piece of furniture or maybe a Gustav Stickley arts and craft piece from the, the turn of the 1900s. What is a genuine reproduction? Well, this is a an area of furniture where they are reproducing or recreating pieces of historic furniture. And I think it's a wonderful idea. You can keep these pieces alive and in use and in front of the public and not just have things locked up in a museum someplace. There's always this dark side that if you're really, really good, you might be able to do a genuine reproduction so good that it could be called an antique. And instead of getting $2,000 for a piece, you could get $20,000 for a piece. Well, this is called a fake or a fraud. And there's a wonderful book called Fake, Fraud, or Genuine by Marina Kay. There's a link in the show notes that talks about this subject, how different pieces of furniture have been faked for use in a fraudulent transaction in the past and, and different histories of this, different techniques. It's If you're really getting into antique restoration, it would be a very, very good read for you. There's a, a very famous story of the great Brewster chair scandal. Again, I'll leave a link in this. This was a gentleman in Maine who kind of got cranked off at some uppity experts, shall we say, and he set out to prove the experts wrong, to prove that they were not infallible. Well, Okay, I'm not going to go into all the details of this. You can read this in the in the link. Basically, what he did, he reproduced an original chair from like the 1614, 1634, something like that, the early 1600s. And it ended up in the antique trade and eventually got bought by the Henry Ford Museum. And after he read that the Henry Ford Museum had paid, you know, this all this money for this chair, he started to kind of leak out that he had built a chair exactly like that. And it eventually got back to the people at the Henry Ford Museum that it's possible that they may have bought a fake. Well, at first, they strongly denied that there is any possibility that the chair they bought was a fake. Simply not possible. They are the experts. They know this is an original chair from the early 1600s. He challenged them. I have proof that I made that chair, and it is not what you think it is. And he challenged them to x-ray the joinery and to they accepted the challenge and did an x-ray of the joinery and came out with a statement that they had indeed bought a fake. Any idea how they knew? Well, this guy had used a modern drill bit to drill the holes for the rungs and it had a, a lead screw where the original built in the early 1600s, would have used a 
spoon bit that would have left a rounded hole. As soon as they looked at the x-rays, they saw that, yes, in fact, the hole had been drilled with a modern spur bit as opposed to a spoon bit. And the jig was up, so to speak. It's very interesting what they did after that. And I'll let you read the article and get the, the full thing. Marketing. Well, marketing for furniture repair is really pretty easy. The only thing you're really going to have to do is to hang up your shingle, you know, do your, your normal stuff, and people are going to start calling you. There are just not very many people around who do furniture repair anymore. Also, contact moving companies. They are always buggering up furniture that they're moving, and they need somebody to fix this like now. That's the one difficulty with working with furniture companies. You may get a phone call on a Sunday afternoon that they've destroyed something and need you to to come and fix it. I can't say that that would be great work, but it is something if you're, you know, just starting out, you could certainly see a, a lot of um, a lot of accidents that way. But if there's a lot of you know moving companies in your area, you could definitely stay busy. I've had phone calls even from you know like 50, 75 miles away, uh, people looking for for someone. You can also contact some of the big online furniture stores. Uh, Wayfair comes to mind. I've actually had calls from them that somebody had bought a piece of furniture from them and it arrived damaged. Would you go over and take a look at it and see if it's repairable or should we have to replace it? And they pay you for your time. They're actually very, very good about doing that. Also check out your local furniture companies, the retail stores, because, I mean, stuff happens. And something gets scratched, something gets dinged, and you can establish a really good working relationship with with a couple stores. And, you know, they could send you quite a bit of business. Museums, don't be afraid to reach out to them because a lot of times they don't quite need a conservator, but it's a, it's a local item that has value in the local community, but... You know, the big museums would, would never want this, but there might be a little damage that needs a little cleanup, something like that. You could, uh, also get in there. That would be a really good end in the community, especially if you, they allow you to put up a little card, you know, restored by, you know, Joe's Furniture Repair. And since the baby boomers, old people have the old furniture, it, is not a bad idea to reach out to them directly. A lot of libraries will offer some type of, you know, lecture series on various subjects. You can get in on that and just give a, you know, 20 minute, 30 minute speech on care and feeding of your furniture or classic furniture in a particular era, whatever, you know, your your interest, your specialty is, that would be a, a good way of reaching out. Uh, service organizations like Rotary Club, they're always looking for a dog and pony show, you know, for their meetings, and you could, could fulfill that very easily. And 
generate a lot of business for yourself. I hope I've given you something to think about. I hope I haven't scared anyone away. Furniture repair involves everything. It's probably the most encompassing way of woodworking there is because there's just so many different things you need to be good at. If you're not really good at something, let's say veneer, well, study that. There's tons of books. There's YouTube videos. You can go to workshops. Do something to to educate yourself, to improve your skills. These will pay off down the road. And since furniture repair and especially restoration focuses so much on the appearance of the wood and the color of wood, I would encourage you to take an art class at your local community college or art guild, something like that. I don't care if it's oil colors, watercolors, you know, basic drawing, illustration, but learn color and how to use it and how to manipulate it. You'll, you'll find it just to be an excellent tool in your toolbox. So recommendations for the week. Oh, wow. I've got a lot of them. I mentioned the uh, Bumgarter restoration videos. Uh, there's also the uh, the Brewster chair. You've got to read that. It's absolutely hilarious. I also mentioned the uh, Fake Fraud or Genuine book. And there is a, a group, an organization called the Society of American Period Furniture Makers. This is a unique group of individuals who specialize in reproduction of early American furniture, and they are awesome. They put out a yearly publication that is worth every penny that you will spend on it. It's a little bit on the pricey side. I mean, it's literally a book, but I would highly suggest that you get involved with them. Even if you're not interested in building period furniture, the techniques that they use are incredible. Miss Jobs um, guess what? <laughs> furniture. <laughs> like I said, I'm not taking any uh, furniture jobs right now, but I still get phone calls every week. So I hope you do consider going into furniture. You can dip your toe in it or you could jump whole hog. I think an ideal situation would be for someone to open up a furniture repair, furniture restoration shop with an upholstery shop attached or nearby. Because a lot of times you'll you'll get into upholstery. I didn't even mention that in the podcast. I do upholstery when I can't get anyone else to do it for me. But if you had both those bases covered, I think you could do just a bang-up business. So anyway, I thank you for listening, and you can reach out and find more information on the website, workingatwoodworking.com, or you can always give me a call. The number is in the show notes. Drop me an email or buy me a cup of coffee. Really appreciate it. Until next week, happy woodworking.